Hello, this is Greg Pock, and you're listening to the Pockcast. A few months ago, I ran a Kickstarter for a digital book of Kickstarter advice called Kickstarter Secrets, which is slated for release at the end of the month. You can pre-order it right now at kickstarter-secrets.com. As stretch goals for that book, I interviewed a number of amazing Kickstarter creators. Now, I'm running those interviews as a podcast series right here on the podcast. Today's interview is with the great C. Spike Trotman, an indie comics and Kickstarter legend who's run nine comics Kickstarter campaigns and now runs her own small press publishing company. Spike's got tremendous advice for figuring out when crowdfunding makes sense, how to get word out about projects, what some of the challenges of shipping are, and the possible advantages of working with a fulfillment house. And her discussion of her experiences getting further distribution of her books after the Kickstarter is invaluable. You can find Spike online at ironcircus.com and on Twitter at iron underscore spike. And here we go. I am thrilled to be talking today with C. Spike Trotman, uh, <laughs> who I have, we were just, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about our mutual admiration for each other. Uh, <laughs> I've um, been uh, amazed by, Spike has done, uh, am I right, nine Kickstarters? I have run, and I've organized and run nine Kickstarters, and I have saved a tenth, so oh, yes. as I... As I like to say when I'm feeling extra obnoxious, my Kickstarter success rate is actually in excess of 100% now. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, uh, well, let's plunge into it. Um, I mean, you are one of the earliest comics Kickstarter adopters. Uh, I think 2009, right, was your first one? Yeah, I ran my first Kickstarter back when the site was new. Um, it was for Poorcraft, which is the comic I'd kind of always wanted to write, but I never had... I never had the money to pay an artist to illustrate. Like I had the script completely planned out in my head. I knew what subjects I wanted to cover. And the whole point of the book would be the book I wish someone had handed me when I turned 18. And it would cover a lot of sort of general education, living 101 stuff, like how to cook, how to choose a roommate, what should be in your first toolbox, just a lot of practical information, a surprising number of people leave home without learning. Yes. And I, I would tell my friends about this. I'd be like, oh, this is such a good idea. One day I'd like to do it. One day, one day, one day. And then one day a cartoonist, a fellow cartoonist, Gordon McAlpin, he told me about Kickstarter and I went home and I looked it up. And back then it was so new. It didn't even have a comics section. Oh, wow. <laughs> like it never occurred to them the enormous role they would wind up playing in the comics community as a whole. So I looked it over and the thing that really appealed to me about Kickstarter, and you know, forgive me if I'm jumping ahead here a bit. Oh, no, uh, go for it, yeah. Yeah, basically what it was was it formalized and made transparent things that the comics community online had already been doing for ages anyway. So no one had to prove to me it worked. I knew it worked. There were, like me and all my friends, when it was time to publish a book, we took PayPal pre-orders and we made a thermometer graphic and we put it on our website and we got the quote and we went to our fans. We went, okay, so it's going to cost me $6,000 to publish this book, everyone. And here's the PayPal account for the pre-order. And hey, uh, I'll update the thermometer every day. And, you know, hopefully we'll we'll get to the, the price. And everyone did that. It was, it was so common. So I looked at Kickstarter as, oh, wow, it's like, here it is. It's a, it's a place I can, it's automatic, which was really nice. It keeps track of everything for you. So there's no spreadsheet wrangling yeah. behind the scenes of PayPal and it updated automatically and everyone knew exactly how much money was in there. Like they didn't just have to, you know, take your word for it. <laughs> and I was like, wow, what a great site. This is 
so obviously amazing. This is going to be big. I remember saying that to friends in 2009. <laughs> this is going to be big. And I mean, I don't consider that very prophetic because it just seems so glaringly obvious to me it was going to be a big deal. Yeah, well, you know, I, I uh, you know, not to, uh, not, to, not to get too distracted with praise for Kickstarter, but why not? Um, yeah. I, I, there was no guarantee that it would gain the kind of credibility it did and that it would continue to stay true to its uh, central mission and roots. You know what I mean? Like, the, like I mean, I, I love the fact that Kickstarter has become, uh, what, what's the name of it? A public interest corporation or a public service corporation? Yeah, yeah I love that. I didn't even know that designation existed before I heard about exactly. it. Exactly. You know, so I, I, I mean, I've, I, you know, fingers strongly crossed that Kickstarter remains independent and devoted to, uh, you know, and, and has a, a mission of public service because that's exactly what it is. It's, it is, uh, it enables so much, um, so much independent work to, uh, to get to its audience. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. And honestly, it's like, okay, here's the thing. The comic scene is not a big scene compared to just about every other entertainment medium out there. And I'm talking like TV pros, movies, etc. Mm -hmm. It's really small. And as a result, a lot of the people functioning in the comic scene up until recently <laughs> have been small press publishers who had very limited budgets. And even if they got 20 awesome proposals to publish books a year, if the budget says they can only publish 10, they can only publish 10. Right. And it's comparable to going to a comic convention when you walk down the aisle and you are just bombarded on all sides by really interesting work and, you know, what you choose to buy is about your budget. It's not that you don't think comic A is less worthy than comic B in a lot of circumstances. It's just that, you know, I only have $50. Yeah, and that's kind of where the publishers used to be. They they have $50, and that's, yeah. that's pretty much it. And as progressive and awesome as those publishers have been and are, um, they may not understand the audience for different exactly. kinds of work. And, or, 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 you know, just may not have the means to reach them. Um, yeah. I, I was reading an interview with you uh, where you were talking about um, uh, getting offers for distribution for some of your books, and you turned them down because you realized that you had that you would be able to do it better, um, or, or that you would you had a better connection to the audience than those those publishers might. The deals just didn't make sense. I had the same kind of experience when I was coming up in film with my feature film. I I, I went to film school. I made a feature film called Robot Stories, and um, oh. and I got a few offers for distribution. Um, which was amazing because that's the dream, right? You know, I mean, you, yeah. you, uh, and, but I just ran the numbers and I kind of looked at what they, they were looking at doing and looked at what I, you know, realized I could do, um, with my team and we ended up self-distributing. Um, yeah. but, uh, well, I, I'm getting a little ahead of it here, but, um, let me, let me ask you about this. So you, uh, uh, also in that interview, you said Kickstarter is a place, uh, it was this is just a great quote. Kickstarters are a place to monetize an audience, not find an audience. Um, oh, yeah. And I'd love to hear about that because, like, when folks, uh, you know, are doing, thinking about doing a Kickstarter for the first time, uh, I, I mean, you've said this and I've said this. It's not a, it's not a magic money machine. It's, it's, yeah. it's a little different. Tell, tell us about your take on that. Basically, um, people have come up to me and they've asked me, how do you, how do you know when it's time? Like, Oh, I have a webcomic. It's run for two years. How do you know when it's time to make a print edition? Because on the, the ladder upwards in self-publishing these days, it's kind of solidified into a routine where the roadmap goes, start your webcomic, update your webcomic, build your audience, print the book, 
do the con circuit and then onwards and upwards. Mm -hmm. That's kind of that. That's the, the guide everyone's following these days. But you know when it's time to print your first book, quite frankly, when people start asking you for the book. That is when I printed my first collection of my webcomic, Templar, Arizona. When people are like, when's there going to be a book? I really want to just be able to sit down on the couch and read this. I'm like, oh, okay. And, you know, that's what rolled over into what I was talking about before, the PayPal pre-orders. And um, when it comes to sort of going it alone, like you were talking about before, not not really grabbing onto the first deal that you come across or that you're offered rather when it comes to, you know, both film and, and comics publishing. When it came to Templar, Templar did get a publishing deal. It did. Someone did offer me a a standard issue for the time publishing deal for Templar. And I looked at it and I mean, I, I don't want to sound ungrateful, but it wasn't good enough, especially for something that I felt was if I can use, you know, industry lingo, a proven property, forgive, forgive me for that. But also I think there's, there's sort of two factors to consider. One, there will always be a cohort of people in any industry and probably at Thanksgiving around your family table that is convinced you're not legitimate unless someone in a suit is writing you a check for what you do. Right. And the self publishing aspect of any creative industry is always going to look kind of squirrely to people like that. Mm-hmm. And then on the other end, there's a lot of people in the creative aspect of all the creative industries, the, the talent, I guess one could say, who are under the impression if they sign with a publisher, oh, well, they won't have to do anything from there. On. It's easy sailing. It's like when you go to a water park and it's the lazy river ride where you just get in the inner <laughs> tube and you are carried along to greatness from that uh, moment on. Sadly, no. Sadly, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a publisher will never... Well, I can't say this for everyone because not everyone kind of has that self-promotional bone in their body. But a publisher will never be able to push you as hard and with as much focus as you can push yourself, except in a very few circumstances. I'm pretty sure Stephen King doesn't need to talk anybody into promoting his next novel. (laughs) But 99.99% of us aren't Stephen King. And when that 99% signs up for a publisher – that doesn't suddenly mean the entire promotional wing of that publisher will spring into action exclusively on our behalf, send out those reviews, copies, schedule those interviews, do those book tours, do all of that for you. And I have a lot of friends who have published through third parties who are frankly really dissatisfied with what the publisher is doing for them promotion wise. And they feel very strongly their book would sell so much better if only, you know, dot, 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 dot. But, you know, when you're an independent I have to say you're never under the illusion that anyone else is going to do the job for you. Yeah, yeah. So I was that person that was on Twitter and I would find people who were writing for, you know, Onion AV, not Onion AV Club. I guess it's just AV Club these days. People who are writing for AV Club or NPR or whatever. And I would save those emails to a spreadsheet. And whenever a book would come out, it'd just be like a shotgun approach. Everybody would get a review copy link and they'd get a summary and a description of my company and it was just you know like tying tying notes to the legs of pigeons and letting them off the roof and right. hoping one or two come back with a good result and that's so, something so yeah. what what set you up to have that kind of to, i mean did you have any experience in marketing or or uh had you worked with any you know done done any kind of publicity before or was it just like personal inclination combined with just thinking it through and doing what needed to be done. Um, 
this is where it's going to get kind of dark. So here we go. Um, I kind of came up in comics when the, I'm going to say the complexion of comics was very different than it is now. Yep. And the gender of comics is very different than it is now. There was no woman occupying half the New York Times bestsellers list. If, yep. if you, you know, you pick up what I'm throwing down yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I kind of understood on a gut level that I would be bailing out the ocean if I attempted to turn certain forces to my will. I knew that wasn't going to work. So from early on, I kind of understood I was in this alone and I had no life jacket. You know, I had no one throwing me a life preserver. I had to sink or swim. And any failure that I experienced in finding an audience or finding success was because I personally did not try hard enough. Hmm. I felt very strongly there was very little room for the kind of stories I wanted to tell and the kind of person I was in comics back then. So instead of bashing against a glass ceiling for 10 years and hoping something worked out or hoping I could find a publisher that would give me a decent contract and give a crap about me on the same level that it might give a crap about other creators, I figured, you know, like the song says, I can do bad all by myself. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so I felt like sort of the marketing and self-promotion aspect of my career was a necessary development. And I, I don't doubt I have sort of a natural inclination for self-promotion, mm -hmm. but it was one of those things where I didn't feel I had a choice. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm with you. I, uh, I, similar kind of thing when I was coming up, uh, you know, I had this movie called Robot Stories, which is basically an Asian American sci-fi movie, independent uh -huh. sci-fi movie. And, um, you know, uh, people at film festivals loved it. I got amazing support from tons of uh, uh, sci-fi, Asian American and regional film festivals. And uh, mm -hmm. um, I knew that it could find an audience, but it was the kind of thing where folks had not you know, the folks who were distributing movies hadn't seen that kind of movie before. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, <laughs> it, I, I, that feeling of like, I have to do, this is, I mean, that, that was my big first feature film and I had to do everything I could to get that out in the world. I remember on opening weekend of, uh, <laughs> our, uh, of, of when we premiered that film in New York City, I was following the numbers very carefully. The theater that we were screening in was really great and shared me all the box <laughs> office. And, um, and I saw that, we were within a few tickets on that's that Monday night because it was a holiday weekend. We were mm -hmm. within a few tickets of breaking ten thousand. Actually, I think wow. it was Sunday. Yeah, so we were and and uh, and so to that very last show, I bought an extra three tickets to put us over <laughs> the to put us over so that we would get that five five digit you know number there. Yeah, yeah. Be because I was like I and I was like okay now I'm a film distributor. You know what I mean? It's like I'm gonna do. Huh whatever it takes because i knew that you know that that you know having five digits there breaking 10,000 was going to get us more attention than 9,987 you know what i Absolutely. mean like so but yeah i mean thinking you know even going as far as that you know what i mean like that's it felt like i had to do every single thing i possibly could so yeah, i i sorry i kind of oh i was just to say i understand where that's coming from because one of the things that I talk about sometimes on Kickstarter is the six-figure club, which is when your Kickstarter, any Kickstarter you run breaks $100,000. Yeah. And it's like, does that make a huge difference between like $95,000 and $100,000? No, not really. Yeah. But like that, <laughs> that extra space, that extra 
six figure, that one zero zero comma zero zero zero. Yeah. Suddenly people sit up and take notice. Suddenly yeah. you're worth something, you right, know? Right. And it, you know, it, it, it's important to always like be able to separate in your own head the difference between something that is good for publicity and something that actually means oh, yeah. something in terms of the, the quality of the thing. But, but oh, like yeah. that, but that kind of stuff, it's like, yeah, I mean, having an eye for that and being willing to hustle and get out there and you know, oh, yeah. that, that's, that's all part of it. Hustle um, is so important. Yeah. And so you enjoy it, right? I mean, just oh, yeah. talk- <laughs> so what's yeah. your, what's your, or do you have any advice for somebody who, you know, who's in a kind of similar position has projects they want to get out in the world, but they don't have that bone for, for mm. talking, you know, for getting out there and hustling, you know, personally to, uh, to okay. sell their stuff. Well, worst case scenario, the person who absolutely 100% has no hustle, wants no hustle, is terrified of the prospect of cold emailing strangers to t- asking them to talk about them. Right. My first bit of advice would be get over it. If you <laughs> 100% cannot get over it, if it's you can't, it's an absolute wall in your psyche that will never come down. Okay. My second bit of advice would be consider working for somebody. Because it's going to be real rough out there for you if you don't want to hustle, period. And if that is still also completely out of the question, third place and third for a reason would be there are professional publicists out there. Right. And I, the best example I can think of is um, there was a Kickstarter for a a uh, project called Fresh Romance, which was modern romance comics. Yeah. And they got an Entertainment Weekly article which is a big deal and the reason they got it is they hired a publicist the thing that puts publicists in third though they're not cheap yeah and (laughs) they they'll let you know when you first bring them on it's like this is what it's going to cost to run this level campaign that level campaign the other level campaign most cartoonists are not going to be in any kind of position to hire a publicist for their project because most cartoonists their first project is going to be like maybe a two to ten thousand dollar print the first hundred pages of my web comic book and right. the publicist is going to roll in and be all like, that'll be $3,000. Like, oh my God. <laughs> that's, like, that's, that's out of the range for yeah. people like us, cartoonists. Um, but if you are willing to learn, if you are willing to change, the best approach I can suggest is something that's the least intimidating, which is go on sites that you enjoy. If you read entertainment weekly or AV club or auto straddle or women write about comics or black nerds, just whatever, whatever you're into, go on that site and find the authors on that site whose work you enjoy and whose work you are always excited to read because they seem to have the same taste in you, Mm -hmm. taste as you rather. And you know what? This is the 21st century. Find them on Twitter, make a Twitter list of journalists. And when your book is ready to hit the printer or Kickstarter, email them a PDF. And just be like, hi, my name is so-and-so, and and this is my comic, blah blah I read and enjoy your work on website.com, and hopefully I could get a nice quote for you for the back of this book and for my upcoming Kickstarter project. If not, no hard feelings. Thank you. Bye. And don't take it personally if like 80% of them never get back to you because they get like 10 emails like that a day usually. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Now that's... Yeah, that's that's uh, yeah. The other you know, the, another thing. Um, sometimes there are people work with partners, and sometimes one of the partners is more you know public Outgoing. than the other. Yeah. yeah, so that's another another Absolutely. possible look. That's great. Well, let's get into some nitty gritty here. Um, sure. Shipping. You are. I. I you. You. <laughs> 
Tell me what, because I, I, I seem to remember some time back when you like took a picture of like a room you had dedicated to like your, your shipping empire and, uh, <laughs> and just in, on a practical level, I mean, shipping seems to be the big hangup. That's where so many Kickstarters actually find out that, oh no, we're in the red um, because they yeah. hadn't, you know, they didn't plan things out quite or they, um, and, and uh, also there's a question of scale because um, if you've got a Kickstarter of, you know, where you have to ship less than 200 packages, that be, that feels pretty manageable to do on your own. But then when you start to get over that, it's, it's suddenly, you know, sometimes people just get swamped. Um, have you, uh, have you worked with a fulfillment house? Do you do it all on your own? And if you're doing it all on your own, like, can you give us some pointers for how to organize all that? I've worked on sort of three levels. Uh, Initially, I started off doing all the shipping by myself, you know, with my husband uh -huh. being conscripted into helping. And that was the roughest. And then I moved on to a fulfillment company. I use a local fulfillment company called ShipBob. And they interface with BackerKit conveniently enough. So, you know, that's pretty great. Uh -huh. And nowadays, I'm at a level where the day-to-day -day orders from my online store requires having part-time help that just comes into the office and does shipping for four or five hours a few times a week. That's and so I'm at, I'm at that level now. But initially when I first started off, it was such a pain in the butt. It was for, I'm going to describe sort of the shipping process of my first big Smut Peddler Kickstarter. And by big, I mean six figures. That would be a Smut Peddler 2014 Lady Porn Conquers Earth, if you want to look for it on, <laughs> if you want to look for it on Kickstarter, where it was about $180,000. And that took weeks and weeks and weeks to fulfill on my own. And what would happen is my husband would come home from work because, you know, he's got his day job and we would sit down in the evening and we would stuff envelopes for hours and hours and hours and hours. And in case you're not aware, the Chicago post office is literally if not the worst one of the worst in the nation for a large city they're oh, notoriously no. bad so what we would end up doing at the end of every evening when we had stuffed as many envelopes as we could stand which is usually you know 80 100 or so is we would load everything onto a four-wheel dolly and we would walk it a half mile to the central post postal processing station right. where we would drop it off in sort of this big drop-off cart that they had out 24 hours because oh. we couldn't take this stuff to a post office because they just give us dirty looks right if, if well, we made I mean, a person get involved that's awesome that you had a that they had a drop box that you could just drop it into though that's 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 yeah. better than it could be yeah it's it could have been way worse but it was not easy it right. was you know Having your full day of work and then having four or five hours, we gave ourselves like a cutoff point of midnight or 1 a.m. to oh actually stop packing boxes and putting, and then we put them on the cart and we walk them over. And, you know, we, we met a lot of uh, Chicago flora and fauna <laughs> on the way there. It's like that's how we learned beavers <laughs> live in the river oh, and opossums wow. and raccoons are around here <laughs> and stuff. So it was just like it was an interesting period, but it was nothing we were really hyped to repeat. How how many boxes did you ship, or how many packages did you ship during that time? Um, I don't know the exact number of packages, but it was at least like twenty five, thirty thousand dollars worth of media mail shipping. Right. So if you want to do some math, shipping a smut peddler media mail is about you know yeah three twenty. Yeah. So that, that, wow. Okay. So yeah. it was like yeah, you had. Uh, that's crazy. Yeah, that's like that's like almost ten thousand is what you're saying, or like eight thousand or so, something. A lot. Yeah. It was a lot. That's and a lot. At the end of the day, we were like, okay, we don't want to do this again. Yeah. And 
I happened to be at the Printer's Row Literary Festival, which is a book festival, an outdoor book festival in Chicago. Anyone in Chicago is familiar with it. And I was sitting at a table with a whole bunch of other cartoonists. We'd all gotten together to club together on a, on a tent. And a guy came up and he was all like, oh, uh, do you do Kickstarters? I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh, who do you use for fulfillment? And I'm like, me. And he gave me a card and he was like, actually, um, I'm part of this internet startup and it's called ShipBob and we're really looking for customers. We could handle all of this for you. And I don't think he thought I would ever email him. <laughs> yeah, I think he thought, you know, he was just sort of like doing the rounds, pressing the flesh, whatever. Right, right, right. And one day I emailed him. I was like, hey, I got like 3000 books for you. <laughs> that was like the start of working with ShipBob, which I would give them at this point. They're clearly getting their crap together mm -hmm. on some level. Because there have been hiccups that we've had to address, including them not, um, what's the word, padding boxes correctly uh, for very heavy books. Because the books I tend to make, we're talking three to 500 page books. These are these are fat little babies. Right, so right. if you put too much space in the box, they'll bang around and they'll ding themselves up real good by the time they get where they're going. Right. So they need to be, they need to be cradled. <laughs> they need to be <laughs> held close. And, you know, we had to talk about that a little bit but for the most part i'm satisfied i give them a b like real solid b mm -hmm. where they do free pickup always a plus when you're shipping out a pallet or two worths of books yeah you definitely. know and they're they itemize very clearly when they mis make a mistake they own it and they try and fix it cool and the thing that is the real plus for me is my involvement in shipping has downgraded from four or five hours a night for three to four weeks plus a half mile walk there and a half mile walk back right. to we'd schedule a day ship Bob shows up, they load the truck with the pallets, they leave. And then, you know, a week later, later I get an invoice. And then a week after that, everyone talks about how they got their books. Yeah. So it's so much easier now. And one of the things about building a business, and I understand that a lot of people, they have no interest in becoming a publisher, which is kind of what I stumbled into. But one of the things about building a business is it becomes vital somewhere along the way to learn to delegate. And there are many things Iron Circus needs done that does not require the person doing them to be me. Right. And shipping is one of those things. So I was very happy to delegate that. That's uh, tremendous. So how do they uh, how do they charge you? Like, is it is it pick and pack where they're charging you for each item they touch to pack in there, or uh, or is there a, uh, do you work out like special? You know, you kind of look at everything and work out a special thing. Or um, before uh, using before using them, I did a little math, and they have I'm not sure exactly what the technical term for it is, but they have this deal with the USPS, the United States Post Office, where they get their postage for a fraction cheaper than, you know, Joe Schmo, you mm -hmm. and I would. Is it cheaper and, than the than the Indicia discount that you would get by doing it through Indicia? Yes. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and I know that because I did the whole I ran the whole spreadsheet thing where if I packed all of these myself, yeah. excluding the hours that I'm personally losing doing it, how much would it cost? Right. And if I gave it to ShipBob to do it, how much would it cost? And I looked at it and basically it would cost a small amount less for ship Bob to do it. So I'm talking like three figures less for them to do it, but right. that, you know, okay, cool. You know, it's cheaper and I save a million hours. Yeah. Awesome. That's, that's kind of hard not to, uh, to jump all over that. That's pretty good. Yeah. And yeah. I should note, I also used Amazon to fulfill at one point oh, and okay. Amazon, if you want to talk about a crazy discount on shipping, Amazon's, 
ace in the hole is they not only get a superb shipping discount, but they ship really fast. Like media mail tends to take a week. When Amazon did fulfillment on Smut Peddler, I think it was two days and wow. people got their books because they're Amazon. Right, right. Why? So why did you, uh, what, what made you go with uh, ShipBob instead of Amazon uh, after that? Oh God, Amazon just had a lot of, I don't know, like interface with with forms online that I just couldn't be arsed. You right, know what I mean? Right, right, right. I had to fill out a lot of stuff. I had to give them a lot of detail. I had, you know, the exact dimensions of the book and the exact weight and this, that, the other. Where a ship bob shows up, I tell them, you know, face to face, ship these media mail, here's the list of people to ship to. Right. And it's just so much easier. Right. Yeah, I worked with a local uh, New York-based uh, fulfillment house for my last two. And it was great because I could just go into the warehouse and talk to them, you know, and uh, and, yeah. and work out any little issues, look at the exact way they're going to ship stuff. And, right. Um, yeah, there's a there's a real advantage to going local, I think. Uh, sometimes Absolutely. Um, okay, so uh, the... One of the reasons I was really, really excited to talk to you is because you are doing, th you're taking things the step beyond. After having done so many Kickstarters, you are, like you said, you've become a publisher. Um, and so you are looking at what you do with your stuff after the whole Kickstarter is over. Um, yep. And uh, I'd love to hear something about that. I mean, I know that you've been, uh, I, I mean... First, there's the kind of obvious thing of, okay, you overprint your book a little bit. You've got books that you can sell at cons. You can, you can, you can sort of build a business uh, or, or a part of your business with going to cons and selling books. But now you're actually talking to book distributors. Um, oh, yeah. I'd just love to hear more about all of that. Um, I am one of those people who makes New Year's resolutions. And my New Year's resolution for 2016 was to find distro because Iron Circus Books – when I take them to cons, they sell. And I have actually, through basically guerrilla marketing, I have assembled a list of about 40 shops that I wholesale to. Yeah. But again, like fulfillment, it's one of those things where I kind of look around and I understand at some point it's time to delegate. I know my books sell. Here's the track record proving it because I have people ordering 40 or 50 at a time from me wholesale. Wow. So that's not an issue. And I know I can find clients, so that's not an issue. What an issue is, is the hours I spend doing this, I could spend on something else. So I decided to find distro. And again, I am all, I am all completely, you know, I learned this in the streets, man. You know, it's like <laughs> I, have, I have absolutely no formal training in the world of publishing. But fortunately, I'm with, I have friends who do. And it was so serendipitous. I was on a Skype call with some friends, and I was telling them about my ambition to find distro. And it just so happened, one of my friends had one of their friends over, and her name was Molly. And Molly heard me on the Skype chat talking about distro. And she was like, hi, excuse me, um, I'm a friend of so-and-so's. And I was, I was wondering, you said you're looking for distribution. You live in Chicago, right? Did you know that the book sellers, like the BEA, the Book Expo of America, is going to be in your town this year in a few months and that's where everybody goes to find like publishers and distributors and stuff and i was like no i did not know that you know? <laughs> i went and i looked at the website and i searched and there are all these distributors listed as being there and i was like oh my god amazing so i registered to attend and uh it was an interesting experience i i was very eye of the tiger that day i was very i will prove myself i saw you tweeting about it and you were like i'm, <laughs> I'm here I'm, I'm i'm doing this yeah. i'm gonna make this happen 
Because it was like I was going in prepared to have to argue my case, oh, you know. Yeah. And I took my I took my Uber down there to the um the McCormick Center, which is the McCormick Place, excuse me, which is the big expo hall they have in Chicago. And I walked in, and immediately like five distributors were super interested <laughs> because. I was one of those people who didn't show up with this opinion that distro would save me or right. distro would be my big break. I showed up with, I'm tired. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't do this anymore. Can you do this for me? And I remember I was talking to a woman from one distro who I had not planned to talk to. I just ran onto her on the floor and she was like, okay, so tell me about yourself. And I told her how many books I'd published, how long I'd been around and what my uh, gross revenue was for last year. And she interrupted me. I was like, do you have a card? <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, okay. I am worth a damn. Yeah. I completely was psyching myself out. And after, you know, a couple of months of comparing and contrasting the interest I got, I decided to go with, and I, I imagine it doesn't hurt to mention, I decided to go with Consortium, which is the distributor of starting in 2017, not just me, but Uncivilized Books, Koyama Press, oh, uh, Flying Eye, a lot of small 2D cloud, a lot of small press publishers that are real mover shakers. And, you know, it's like they're doing really interesting things. They're on the vanguard of the small press. Right. And I felt like I fit in there a lot. And since they are already selling those people, they'll probably know how to sell me. Yeah. So, you know, that was the reasoning. And that was my big victory that I, I, found, a, I found a distributor. And it's like it's like the whole Aladdin on a carpet thing. It's definitely a whole new world. Like I thought I had things figured out. I I had nothing figured out. Wow. What I was doing was nothing compared to what these guys can do, which is as it should be because right. you know, it's their job and they're taking a hefty cut to do their job. So obviously they have to be good at it. And I went up to Minneapolis, which is where their headquarters is and had an in-office meeting. They caught me out up on everything they would expect of me and it was sort of it was real you know distributor 101 stuff where it's like you have to be in our catalog this is how you submit things to our catalog this is how you submit things to reviewer reviewers these are the boxes the literal boxes of galleys and review copies we mail out on a quarterly basis to all reviewers this is where you upload PV pdfs that every reviewer for every major publication knows about so they can download it to review here's a list of all the emails sorted by specialty like, you know, wow. these are the reviewers who do uh, technical manuals and these are the reviewers that do archaeology books. And these are, you know, just sorted like that. So, you know, when your new book comes out, you can just send it off to these emails specifically. And I'm going in November to basically do a presentation to buyers in Nashville that this distributor organizes. And we're going to show off our line, talk about what we've got coming up and hope people buy our books. And it's so much more intense and in depth than I was planning on. But at the same time, I'm really excited because like the numbers they're talking about, they would, they, they told me when I first showed up, it's like, what kind of sales would you expect to be making through us? And my response is literally like, can you do better than zero? Cause my distro right now is this self-started basically non-existent thing. You know, I, if you can do better than zero, I'll be happy. All right. And they and and they and did did they come back at you with a number? Did they did they have any speculation? Um, they have given the thing that I'm really into right now is they do give projections, but since I'm brand new and they have literally never worked with anybody like me, a person who like kickstarts their lines, right. they have no idea what to expect. The big worry, and I heard this from other people, the big worry among distros is that they're 
under the impression that anyone who, with a kickstarted book, whoever wants that book already has it. Right. Which is ridiculous. I mean, for yeah. some, I mean, I, I, maybe that's not ridiculous for some, you know, for some books, maybe that is exactly the case, but, yeah. uh, but when you think about how many millions of people there are in the country exactly, and, and the fact that Kickstarter only, I mean, as amazing as it is, only reaches a tiny fraction of them. You know, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I, there, it seems, I've always felt this way about comics is that, that, that there are a hundred times more people in this country that would be interested in reading. Well, yeah, a hundred times more people in this country that would be interested in reading almost any comic book on the shelf that yeah. actually has access to it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, but that's one of the things about, um, both Porecraft and my pornography line, Smut Peddler, and most recently my, my very first porno GN, Yes Roya, is that there are so many millions of people who have no idea stuff like this exists. Right. And I hear stories from people who buy books from me all the time. Like they tweet at me and they email me and they say things like, okay, you, I, I know this probably sounds weird, but I had to tell you about it because it was so funny. I was just sitting, reading, you know, Porecraft, and somebody on the bus was like, what is that? And I told them, they're like, oh my God. Where did you get that? Can I can I get that at Borders? And it's like, no, this is this is very, you know, <laughs> I got this online. I bought it directly from the publisher. And the person like immediately demanded contact information so they could go buy it. And it's like our big problem isn't tiny number of people interested in comics. Our big problem is access to everyone else. Yeah. Distribution has always, well, not always, but for the past several decades, been the biggest bottleneck in comics. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 fascinating to me. I mean, so regarding like the, the distributor search, I mean, this kind of, I'm sort of sensing a theme here, which is that uh, <laughs> that you get things when you're at the point where it makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. it's like you. I mean, it's not like you can walk in there and just have a great book. You walked in there with a great book and with evidence that you have been selling this book to tons of people. Um, yeah, for... it's a business arrangement. So people want to know that they're not going to have to be doing all the heavy lifting. When when I walked in, it wasn't somebody who was all like, please take me on, please, please, please. Yeah. It was, hi, I have this warehouse full of books that I know people want and here are all the numbers proving it. What do you say? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, and that, in a way that's very similar to like just Kickstarters in general, which is yeah. like, like you, you run the Kickstarter you know, again, that I think that your quote is just perfect. It's a place to monetize your audience, not necessarily find it. I mean, Kickstarter yeah. will let you build it in amazing ways, um, yeah, and yeah, will let you reach people that you hadn't, who hadn't ever heard of you before. But, um, but it's like the initial ask. I always say, um, or at least I'm saying in the book, is that you know, like you should you should think about your initial target being uh, a reasonable sum that you could get if all the people you already know work back your thing you know what i mean yeah. um yeah and you... there is something called the uh this might be a little markety for mm -hmm. some people but there's something called the three percent rule yeah that you know three percent of the audience for anything that is you know free like air quotes free like television or whatever three percent of that audience will ever be willing to pay for something right. from you so you know look at your twitter three percent of those people might buy something from you one day look at your tumblr look at whatever the page views on your comic, 3% of those people. And uh, I'm actually doing slightly better than that, in that's, my that, opinion. That's excellent, yeah. Because I've, I've, heard, I've heard very successful people say they get about 1%. Yeah, so. yeah, because, you know, that's just how it is. Yeah. There will be people, I've seen them sort of say things like, oh, I don't understand what's going on. I have like 3,000 followers on Tumblr, and 
I launched this project and no one seems interested. And it's like, no, the exact number of people are interested that I would guess would be interested. Right. So but Kickstarter, it's like there's a lot of people who who go to Kickstarter and like I've mentioned it before, like the guy who shows up with the wheelbarrow and it's like, I'm here for the money. And it's like, no. And it's it's at the same it's at the same thing where I have been placed, by the way, on some sort of mailing list, I think, for like Kickstarter influencers. And I wish you could see me doing like the air quotes thing. <laughs> Where people are under the impression that Kickstarter isn't a platform to exploit an audience. It is a group of rich people sitting in a room somewhere and you run in and you try and sell them things. Right. Which, don't get me wrong, you will get funding if you run a Kickstarter from people who are just browsing the site and just happen upon you. But the majority of your funding will very likely not come from those people. They'll come from people who already know you, already like you, followed you to Kickstarter because you posted a link, and they follow you on Twitter or Tumblr anyway. Yeah. Well, and a lot of people who are just drifting around on Kickstarter looking for cool stuff will yeah. only back a project if they see it's already gotten a certain amount of support and credibility yeah. from other folks. You know, yeah. So like you bring your folks to the party, and then other people join the party. Exactly. Um, Tell me about uh, handling adult material, um, <laughs> because there are all kinds of regulations about shipping and selling and all that kind of stuff. I'm curious how you handle that. Even even just uh, you know for doing it on Kickstarter, did you have to like click a special button to say this is adult material, or how do you how do you make sure, or how do you what do you um, do? I try to practice a basic level of respectability. Mm -hmm. I have never been asked by Kickstarter to do anything a certain way, and there is no button or checkbox you click right. to say this is for adult material. Right. Um, when I make my Kickstarter campaign and I use illustration, you know, I use illustrations from the book for it. I, I don't put in any nips or tips as I put, as I say, <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's something that you would feel comfortable showing, you know, a 12 year old because nothing's out there. Nothing's right. hanging or dangling. And I make it very, very clear. It's erotica in the text. Oh, and, okay. you know, I use the word porn in the title, you know, so there is no mistake about what you are backing, even if there is no explicit nudity on the site itself. Right. I emailed Kickstarter initially and I was like, would this be OK? And they said, we have no problem with that. And there have definitely been people who have attempted <laughs> to report my projects oh. for being adult material. Interesting. And my personal favorite was, this is before a redesign, so this isn't possible anymore, but back in the day, years and years ago, the report this project button used to be very close to the ask this project creator a question button. Oh. <laughs> and there were a few misclicks where oh. people were clearly trying to report me. <laughs> and it's, I had to be talked out, you know, by my husband. I had to be talked out of replying to them because they would write me with things like not me you know they, they think yeah. they're writing kickstarter they would write me with things like what is the point of reporting these disgusting projects if you won't do anything about it <laughs> and just so in case anyone in the future is thinking of like mounting some kind of campaign i know for a fact that kickstarter's lawyer approved the, the smut peddler 2014 project <laughs> personally because that was back when the approval process was still going through some changes right. and they told me everyone at the office was pitching in approving projects you know sitting at the computer and clicking approve 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 and he sat down my project came up he read the description he giggled he went smut peddler and he clicked approve <laughs> so 
Good luck getting me off that site. <laughs> what about uh, selling at cons and stuff? Um, like, do you do you do you have to ask for IDs or anything like that, or do you do you just? I mean, is that something that even comes up? If you look under thirty, I will ask you how old you are, and if you hesitate, I probably won't let you look at the books. Gotcha. But I have to say, one of the nicest parts of Small Press Expo 2016 this year is a guy came up with a parent. And the parent announced very happily, he turned 18 yesterday. <laughs> and he bought all my adult comics. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's hilarious. Loved, that was the best. I loved it. What about what about shipping? I mean, is there is that an issue with the U.S. Post Office? It has never been an issue. Um, I have shipped all my material media mail mm-hmm. for the better part of a decade, more, more than a decade, honestly. I've never had my books opened and sent back as, you know, this does not qualify for media mail or anything. It is a, you know, it's a book. It's a book format thing with no advertising. So it qualifies as media mail. I don't care what anyone says. And I've never had an issue with shipping. The the closest thing I've had to an issue is apparently someone underage used a parent's credit card to back back Smut Peddler on Kickstarter. But the parent let the charge go through. And then when the book showed up, they took it for themselves and went, no, this is mine. You used my money to buy it, so oh, it's okay. mine. So they, they, they contacted <laughs> you to tell you about it, though? I saw it on Tumblr. Oh, okay. Someone was like, oh, my smut peddler came and my mom took it because I used a credit card without asking. And she was all, oh, is this my book? <laughs> That's awesome. So how many how many other books are you publishing or how many other creators are you Oh, publishing? I'm so excited about this. This is my favorite part. Okay. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a Peter Molyneux. That's, that's gaming humor and <laughs> just, just sort of ruin everything right now. Um, oh. I am currently in talks to import two different artists. One is Japanese and one is Fr- a, a team. One is French mm-hmm. and the French one has advanced to the, they have, named their price for licensing and I have accepted it and I'm waiting for the paperwork Mm -hmm. stage. So that's where that is. That seems like I'd say that's 85 to 90% likely to happen. And the Japanese one is I hired a translator and I wrote them and I told them how much I liked their work and I wanted to import it. They replied and they seem very into the idea. So I would give that a 60 to 70% chance of happening, but I'm, I'm, currently seeking a person who knows enough about you know trans-pacific law that they can write a contract that is binding in both japan and the united states right now so i can publish their work the french stuff is a lot easier but the japanese stuff is going to take a little some acrobatics but i'm really excited about both of those those are the things in sort of the far-flung future um poor craft which is the very first book i ever ever kick-started the one that started it all. Uh-huh. It's currently running on Go Comics on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. Mm-hmm. And it is being offered in a reprint in Consortium's upcoming catalog. So I'll be reprinting Smut Peddler. It's past time. <laughs> I've got like maybe 30 or 40 copies of it left. Oh, wow. And I think of all the Iron Circus books, it's the one that's the most uh, bookstore sexy. It's the one that belongs in back to school and graduation displays. It's yeah. the one that belongs in 
college bookstores. And as I told the team at Consortium, there's always somebody turning 18 somewhere. It's an evergreen title. Is it a, is it a book you update? Uh, I am going to be updating it for the reprint because it printed at a real wacky time where uh, the American, the Affordable Care Act was going through. So there were a lot of stopgap measures until the Affordable Care Act kicked in 100%. Right. So there's a lot of information in there that is now obsolete. Gotcha. So I'll, I'll be updating those pages for it. And um, I have a tradition of publishing small PDFs for other creators that are like $5 in my store. And I recently received the completed script for let's do pre-press for a comic and not screw it up. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, a companion piece to let's kickstart a comic and not yeah. screw it up. And it'll tell you everything about backing your blacks, color separation, the difference between RGB and CMYK, how what resolution you should be drawing or scanning at, how to clean your inks if you're still on analog inking, just a lot of really useful information. You know, not everybody who wants to make comics professionally went to uh, a comics program yep. at an art school. So a lot of us had to kind of like learn this in the bush, you know? Yeah, in yeah, 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 totally. I, I, and, I remember when I first, when I did my first, uh, when I printed my first book, uh, like the we, the artist hadn't uh, extended uh, the art into the bleed. Uh, uh, you know, so there, there are these places where if it had printed as is, like it went directly up to the cut point, but which oh. means that you might get a little sliver of white, white you know? So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, stuff like that. I didn't know, you know, and I, yeah. so there's like tons of stuff like that. That's, that's great. Yeah. And as usual, that'll be a little $5 PDF in my, on my site. Uh, probably will never see print, you know, for obvious reasons. It's just a little PDF. But um, the ones that I've announced recently, I've announced um, an erotic graphic novel, novel, excuse me, by Sarah Winifred Cyril about uh, Edwardian lovers who are women, like lesbian Edwardians, who are in service. And, you know, the term sort of in service is that they work at a manor house for a lord and a lady. And it's just sort of a really sweet little love story that takes place on sort of the awakening of women's liberation in England. So they're content, like in another world, they would have been content to sort of stay in their lord's service for the rest of their lives and share their little attic bedroom for the rest of their lives. <laughs> and one of the things I really like about it is it's not a... The terminology is tragic queer story, which basically means that they are somehow on some level punished for their homosexuality as right. a plot point. Yeah. It's like, no, this is more about them sort of finding bravery within themselves to like, no, you know what? We can live on our own and we can support ourselves and we don't have to be a maid for the rest of our lives. Let's do this. Like, that's the story. That's cool. And I'm also publishing Melanie Gilman's As the Crow Flies, the first volume next year. And if you've never read it, it's it's a fantastic webcomic about a tween age, maybe 13 year old girl named Charlie, who is the only black girl at an all white Christian summer camp. And it's <laughs> it's just so awkward and painful and awful. And I cannot wait to publish that. And I'm also pu publishing uh, Lisa Nafziger's book Minus, which really spoke to me like this is the first I've heard of Lisa. And her book is about a, a girl who is raised in isolation and homeschooled by her dad on this, you know, isolated homestead out in the middle of nowhere. And she has very limited contact with the outside world, controlled by her paranoid father. And she gets into college and she and her dad decide to road trip to college, you know, with all her stuff for move in day. 
But during a pit stop, when she uses the bathroom while she's in the toilet, she hears gunshots. And when she finally summons the courage to emerge from the restroom, everyone at the rest stop is dead and her dad and their car are gone. Oh, so exactly. Isn't that gripping? <laughs> and that is how the book opens. That's and cool. And there are other books I'm publishing, but those are like what come to mind immediately. And I'm, I'm just super excited. That's amazing. I mean, so you've, you've got at least that, that, that. So you just talked about about half a dozen books that you're publishing uh, yeah. of other people's stuff. So, I mean, is the goal to how many, how many books do you want to have going uh, out in the world? I mean, what's I'd like your... to get up to between six and seven yearly, just gotcha. new titles. Right, right, I'd right. love to be just a straight up hardcore, just, you know, all, all Jets Forward publisher, including my own work and other people's work, because I will never opt out of the creative end of comics. I would consider that a failure to myself. And like I've mentioned before, um, I recently wrote an erotic graphic novel illustrated by an incredible artist named Emily Denich um, called Yes, Roya. And it was so validating for me to pe for people to get that book and read it and tell me, oh my God, that writing was amazing. I love the writing. I love the art. I love the writing because it confirmed, it reconfirmed for me. It's like, no, I'm not just administration. Uh, I am still talent, damn it. You know? <laughs> I still write. Oh, I still yeah. do creative stuff. I'm not just the person answering the emails over here. <laughs> so I'm always going to be doing that. And Emily and I are going to be working together on a new erotic graphic novel in the future. And you know, there's just a lot going on, and I'm I'm super excited. I'm so, super excited. so do you see Kickstarter being because you're now that you've you're getting uh, mainstream distribution, for lack of a better word, yeah. is Kickstarter still going to be a part of the plan for these works? Or I'd like for it to be, but I'm currently I'm at I won't go into detail, but there is one title I'm working on where guaranteed in the future I will not be using Kickstarter because right. it's explicitly forbidden. Oh. So. At least one title will not be using Kickstarter, but I would very much like to keep using it in the immediate future because at this point, it's kind of like, why not? Yeah. Well, it lets you get the money up front to pay people. And, uh, exactly. and uh, as long as the distributor is not concerned with, uh, you know, a certain number of people getting their copies before it goes out through the distributor, it seems like mm -hmm. what's the, what's the drawback, but. One of the things that I'm going to have to work on is timing everything so that the Kickstarter happens, runs, runs, and then finishes out. And at the time period it finishes out, that is around when I will be getting the projections from the distributor. Right. Because during the time the Kickstarter is running, they will be selling the book to uh. buyers for book for um, store chains and libraries and schools and whatever. And they will come back to me with, we project you'll need, let's pretend a thousand books. And I can just tack that on to whatever the Kickstarter needs. Right. Yeah. And that way you, yeah, you save money on printing and everything else. That's yeah. I cool. get a bigger bulk discount. Yeah. Great. All right. Um, this is amazing. We're running out of time, but let me squeeze in. <laughs> let me squeeze. Yeah, seriously, we could talk for another hour. I'm not even. Yeah, I'm having I, a great time. Uh, let me ask you. Okay. So here's the big, here's a, here's a big sort of future question. How long, is it sustainable, not just in terms of like doing business, but physically? Because like when you're doing a Kickstarter, you're buying into a whole nother set of responsibilities and uh, 
and uh, and also if you're, I mean, you're already, I guess you're already going beyond this though, because you've got your distribution now, which is going to help remove some of that physical pressure. Um, but even just like going to cons and lugging books around, like what, <laughs> you know, as as we get older, what's the what's do you, I mean, what's the master plan, or is there one, or are we just taking it day by day? Basically, um, I've been kind of moving towards where I want to be right now in oh. comics, like over the past few years, where when I was in my early 20s, I was one of those hardcore con people where I was doing like 15, 20 cons a year. I was road tripping to wherever I could find a con, sleeping, you know, six to a hotel room floor just to keep costs down and being happy when I made $200 right. for all that effort. And, you know, as you get older, and your scope gets wider and your audience gets larger, your priorities change. You know, it's at that point now where my 22-year-old self would be grievously offended because I wouldn't roll out of bed for a $200 profit at, for a con weekend. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And at the same time, the business needs me on multiple levels where every other weekend being spent away from home is not sustainable. Right. So I have it pared down to kind of almost an ideal point now, which is I do the three cons a year that I super duper enjoy and make great money at. And on top of that, I do whoever invites me and pays my way. Right. But I am anticipating a future where the majority of the book sales are not through cons and not through the online store and not through Amazon, but through the distributor. Right. And that means instead of going to 50 different places to sell a thousand books over the course of a year, I sell a thousand books at one point and, you know, sell it all at once and load the pallet yeah, and the yeah, truck yeah. picks it up. At, like, the same, at the same time, if you hadn't been doing those 50 places a year oh, yeah. for all those years, we, we wouldn't have been able to build up the, uh, Absolutely. The, you know, it's, yeah, it's like, you don't start out on top. There's, there's a ladder in every industry. And yep. when you're on the bottom, frankly, that's a good time to be young because that's when, you know, your guts are cast iron. That's when you could sleep on gravel, you know? It's like, that's when you can pull all-nighters. That's when you're supposed to do all that crap. And then you, like me, and you're in your 30s, and you're like, no. <laughs> like, no, yeah. no, no. No, I'm going to need a per diem. No, I'm going to need my own hotel room. Thank you. No, um, you're paying for the cab from the airport. No, I'm not taking the subway. You know, it's like, that's, that's kind of where you end up because you're just, you're so over it you're so over it by that it's funny though because i you know i i still see the the benefits though you know i mean of course the, the huge benefit just uh I, I did a little signing tour for my book kingsway west and um uh -huh. down the down the a little bit of the east coast and uh, and then i went back and i did the baltimore comic-con um shortly after that and uh the uh there were just tons of people who had seen me at those little signings who came to see me again at the con. It's like, it's all cumulative. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like every time you oh, show up and show it. your face. Yeah. I love people who come up to the table and I talk about this on a, in a comic I did called, this is everything I know. The most valuable people in the world are the people who come up to the table and just go, Hey, what's new this year? Oh yeah. Oh my God. I love them. I love you. I love those <laughs> Awesome. All right. Um, well, uh, before we sign off, do you have any last minute little nugget of uh, wisdom or advice? Like what's your one big thing of advice for people who are thinking about doing a Kickstarter? Um, don't bother unless you have an audience and you know you have an audience. Have you ever sold anybody any of your work before? When you go to cons, how does it turn out? What's the page view count or the follow on your Tumblr count like? Do you have people you know will back the Kickstarter? 
you can live on a prayer, cross your fingers, and launch a Kickstarter, hoping the mountain will come to Muhammad. But there, like that way, madness lies. You will, you will probably work yourself into a frenzy, wondering why no one loves you when you haven't put in the time to earn anyone's love. Just don't, don't, just don't do it if you you're not ready. That's honestly the best thing because it's so demoralizing to have one fail. I've seen it happen. There you go. Um, that's amazing advice. Uh, you know, the one thing I will say is that Craig Engler has pointed out that when people fail at a Kickstarter and then do another one, they have an incredibly high or a, or a significantly higher success rate. That, that, oh, like, yeah. You know, having, so failure is not, failure doesn't mean permanent failure. Failure, everybody fails. Oh, true, true, you know, true, true. We're all blowing it. Yeah. We're, we're all goofing a, up all the time. But um, A failure is a thing you have, not a thing you are. <laughs> there you go. Um, Spike, this is amazing. This has been <laughs> uh, tremendous. Really, really appreciate it. I had a great time. Thank you for interviewing me. Thank you. And that's it for today's podcast. We'll be back soon with another interview. In the meantime, feel free to check out kickstarter-secrets.com and look for Spike online at ironcircus.com and on Twitter at iron underscore spike. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time. Information in this podcast was provided for educational purposes only. Pac-Man Productions does not guarantee or warrant the accuracy, appropriateness, completeness, safety, or usefulness of any information. In particular, nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice or legal opinion. Users are always advised to consult with a lawyer regarding any legal question. The opinions expressed by interviewees are theirs alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Greg Pac or Pac-Man Productions. All content, copyright 2016, Pac-Man Productions. Music composed and performed by David Libby. DavidLibby.net, D-A-V-I-D-L-I-B-B-Y dot net.